so day one, someone said, hey, just so you know, your, your whole team's going to quit. So it was, uh, um, it was about to the fire, but um, I ended up growing the team from 30 to 1,000 people. Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. In today's 40 Minute Mental episode, I'm joined by former Monzo COO and founder CEO of grocery startup Lollipop, the brilliant Tom Foster Carter. Having co-founded two fintechs, Osper and Curve, and being COO at one of the UK's most recognizable scale-ups, Monzo, Tom was a perfect guest to come on 40 Minute Mentor and share the lessons he's learned over the years, and he certainly didn't disappoint. In today's episode, Tom gives us a candid insight into the challenges of early stage startups and tells us how he became a COO. We also talk about the importance of striking the balance between work and home life as a founder and what Tom's doing differently with his newest venture, Lollipop. It's not every day that someone talks with such honesty and humility about the ups and downs of life as a founder, and he shares some awesome advice for anyone embarking down a similar path. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy these next 40 minutes with the Lollipop founder, Tom Foster Carter. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to see you. How are things? Yeah, absolutely great. Great to be here. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we are going to kick off, as we always do, with some quick fire questions. So if you don't mind finishing these sentences, that would be awesome. Sure. First up, when I was younger, I always wanted to be... A mathematician, although I can't imagine anything more boring now, but I liked maths back in the day. Oh, nice. Okay. The Ka- Carol Vorderman, the male Carol Vorderman. <laughs> yes, love it. Love like it. <laughs> My first job was? I was a conference organizer. So I'd get to go to very glamorous locations like Rome and New York uh, while my friends were working in bars and stuff. So uh, yeah, it was pretty sweet. That's a great first gig. Love that. <laughs> when starting my career, I wish I'd have known? Not to push for more responsibility before I was ready for it. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good, a common trap, I think, for, for leaders as you go through your career. I'm sure we'll, we might touch upon that later. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm most energized at work when I'm... Ooh, when I'm in a group of people and we crack a gnarly problem. Love it. The number of people that say kind of a, a version of that, like problem solving, that is the proper entrepreneur answer. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, can you share something we wouldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or a setback that you've learned from? Okay. It took me two attempts to get into Bain and Company, which is um, sort of management consultancy, very hard to get into. And what actually happened was I interviewed and and I sort of nailed all aspects of it, except there's one interview where I just got asked such a strange question. I just never, I never got into it. And I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And I'm so glad, but I, I mentioned afterwards, I just thought I, I might as well, I've got nothing to lose and just said this was really odd and actually not part of the things that you'd asked us to prep for. And um, they called up and said, hey, you know what, because of the way that you performed in the other parts of it, come back in again, 
interview with a couple more people and we'll see. And they, they gave me the job. So I guess it's a, wow. it's a lesson there That's... about just if you feel like, you know, you should say something, actually say something. I, I so, so easily couldn't have done that. That would have been my whole career. That's fantastic. That's a great, thank you for sharing that. And I'd imagine there are probably a lot of people listening to this going, oh, I should have, I should have called back or challenged them. But yeah, it's, I think fortune favors the brave, doesn't it? When you, sometimes you, you feel like it's worth just fighting for something. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, my, my wife is a good fighter. So when we're in a, a restaurant, uh, you know, if the soup isn't warm enough, she will, <laughs> she will say, and we get warm soup. And I'm like, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. Love that. Love that. Um, amazing. Well, thank you, Tom. I, I've already feel like we've touched upon some stuff that we'll expand on over the course of this chat but um before we get into your amazing new startup lollipop which we're going to talk about later i'd love to delve into the earlier parts of your career because you've had a very impressive one and it's a kind of the perfect segue to your last answer really because i know you started in consulting at accenture and then bain and then moved into fintech um, helping to launch ospa and then co-founding the the rocket ship curve so why did you decide to leave consulting when you did and and go into fintech and and how did you end up being a coo let's see so consulting is a fantastic place to start your career i would still like to say that to anybody uh, really great for problem solving and kind of structuring problems and so on you face a natural point uh, about midway through so as a case team lead so you begin to kind of run cases and so on uh, where you have a decision about becoming a career consultant, really. So you go for manager uh, and then go for partner. And so it's a very natural jumping off point. And I knew one thing for sure. Uh, it was that I didn't want to be a career consultant. I don't think I was naturally an amazing consultant anyway. Uh, and I was kind of I enjoying the learning, but I wanted to get my hands dirty. And that was for, for sure. And then something happened in particular, which was Moshi Monsters, was kind of taking over the world. So this is Mind Candy. And I remember getting a copy of Wired and there was Michael Acton Smith and they'd done something amazing to his face. I'm not quite sure what, he's a very handsome chap anyway, but um, it just, this photo was unbelievable. It looked like a rock star. And I just thought, wow. And that's happening. This was a London startup and, you know, 100 million active users, like 100 million children using this thing. I just thought, this is amazing. And then read another article. It was with uh, Davinia Knowles, and she was a COO, and she kind of said about her journey into it and so on. And I just thought, gosh, these are these are people, and this is their job. And is it possible that a job could be magical in that way? And uh, yeah, yeah it's kind of thought, wow, well, maybe these this all this stuff that you read in in TechCrunch and so on, like these are these are jobs. These are these are things that are happening. And it was happening in London. You know, the startup ecosystem was getting going. So 10 years ago now, and there'd been a couple of fintech successes. So Go Cardless, and that was founded by three, I think three management consultants, definitely a couple of management consultants in there. Uh, one of them was Tom Blomfield, who I ended up uh, going to, to work with at Monzo. And I thought, gosh, okay, these are even management consultants who can do this thing. Yeah, and I'm a management consultant, so perhaps I could. And so I started, I took a sabbatical from, from Bain. They're great on that. So you could take six months and just go and explore and think about different things. And um, then got an opportunity to work on OSPA, which was a children's banking app uh, designed to help children manage their money more responsibly and get into kind of great money habits. And, um, and OPS was just a natural routine. It's a great routine to startups because you don't need to know kind of how everything works. You just need to be good at making things happen and, and organized and, and sort of able to create processes and so on. 
And so that was it. And the COO thing, I mean, <laughs> there, were, there were only four of us. Um, <laughs> so I was COO in charge of nobody. And so yeah, we kind of brilliant. make up our own titles. But it was, it was reasonably hilarious to to go around kind of calling myself COO. But, uh, <laughs> but I kind of loved it. And uh, it looks good on CV. So there you go. Yeah, definitely. No, amazing. Yeah, and it was such an interesting time in tech, wasn't it? It's it's so funny you mentioned Davinia Knowles. I, I know Davinia, she's she's fantastic. And she came on our our other podcast, the COO Secrets, to which we use for aspiring COOs. And it's a, again, it's a good link really to, to my next question because we have lots of candidates that are aspiring COOs. It, 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 it's not always a position that was that glamorous, but increasingly is the role that a lot of people want to do because it really is so impactful. So what advice do you have for anyone listening that's maybe starting out on that journey to become a COA? And is there anything that you wish you'd have known before you got into it? Yeah, sure. So I think the journey itself, how you get up to be COO is and it's it's going to sound uh, it's not rocket science it's about building a reputation for nailing the basics and it is the unglamorous stuff so this is just doing support well so customers are happy and you know you turn this disappointment in, into delight firefighting like there will just always be stuff that you can't predict happening and so it's not about the you know, preventing that um, unless it is coming up over and over, but it is about how you you respond to that, the back office customer processes, the company operations, just so it doesn't get in the way of other things. And so you just need to keep on that and not get distracted by all of the cooler stuff, like you know, what's happening in the product and um, you know, the kind of marketing side and so on. Just do your bit really well. And then you can create the breathing space if you've got processes that are running well to sort of look into uh, into the kind of value add, the nice to have stuff. I feel like in terms of success in the role, the CEO relationship, I mean, uh, I'm sure you must uh, have heard this before, others will have mentioned it. There is nothing else that will have a greater impact on your ability to uh, have a, a kind of great role there and actually how it, it will then kind of play out. And so you should really get to know your CEO. I remember going for long walks with Tom Bonfield before I joined Monzo, just asking zillions of questions, just trying to figure out kind of how he ticked. It was still great to just understand like what I would do and the things that I could do that he couldn't do, which would just allow us to, to sort of slot in together. So that's always been the case with my CEOs. They've all been fantastic in different ways, but I've figured out what's the part that I would slot into to kind of make sure that I could really help and uh, kind of push things forward. And if there's too much overlap between the skill sets of CEO and COO, I think it's bad news because you start to kind of comment on each other's uh, jobs and that's never, never healthy. So I'd say those are kind of the, the main things. If there's a, the one thing I would say and I've seen is that people have some confusion about making things happen versus getting it done. And that's a, there's a huge difference. So things that need to get done don't always need to be you doing them. And I do remember at OSPA uh, working with a, a coach at the, the time, and I, I told him I had I'd listed out, I had 95 active projects that I was personally driving. And he had a phrase for me, which has just always stuck with me. It's like, there is only one way that you could succeed here, and that's to become an orchestrator of doers. Um, and sadly, I didn't get it. It was, uh, you know, I ended up just kind of pretty much killing myself. But, um, you know, then when I got to Curve, I got it. This was about making it happen. But there were many different options for making things happen that weren't always on me. 
Some brilliant advice in there, Tom. Thank you for sharing it. I love that orchestrator of doers. I think there's going to be lots of uh, aspiring COOs scribbling some notes there. And, and the point around chemistry with the CEOs is something that we've seen make or break a lot of companies and is, is such an important part. When you look back at your time with Osper and Curve, what were some of the biggest challenges you had to overcome in those early kind of scaling phases? Oh, gosh, just so so many places we could go to there. So with Osper, we had all of these plans around how we were going to get to growth and uh, hit our numbers and so on. And then we managed to get Davinia McCall to uh, come in as an investor and she sent one tweet oh. and it just, <laughs> it just exploded. <laughs> so that was it. It was just like, okay, great. So that was all growth targets hit and it was about trying to, to keep up with that. So we had this dream launch, got covered in all the, the major papers and so on. And then um, a newspaper publication that I, I won't mention decided to do a really, really mean and, and rubbish thing to us. So they took one of our cards uh, designed for children and then bought lots of inappropriate things with it and said, gosh, this is a card for children. And yet look what we were able to, to do with it. Now, this is really unfair because this is about kind of things that you control at the, the card system level, like things that we couldn't possibly do. And it was everything that we could control, we could. So um, you couldn't use it in bars and um, off licenses and so on. So this was actually pretty good. So this publication decided to uh, do this kind of mean thing. And um, we suddenly had this story, uh, this big splash of uh, Osper cards, uh, you know, and you can do naughty things with them. And we got called up by MasterCard and they said, we're switching you off. Oh, no. And that was a very Gutting. bad day. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> that, After that all was... your hard work and having that sort of splash in the press as well, that's so, oh, I feel for you. That must have been horrible. <laughs> That was a bad day at the office. So we had some frantic negotiation. Our CEO, Alec, was taking his first ever holiday, can you believe, of course, at, at this moment. So then had to call him up and say, get back here. Uh, it's crisis time. And um, we came up with an agreement with, with MasterCard. If we could come up with a, a way where parents could control whether it could be used on the internet or not, then they would allow us to, to sort of continue in business. And uh, meanwhile, we'd be off until that point. So cue a very frantic weekend of everybody just working, working, and, and we, we managed to get this thing done. The most amazing thing about it was the way the team came together over that. Actually, we were, we were definitely stronger. And my favorite thing about it was it really put things into perspective. So I remember being out for lunch and somebody saying, oh, something's gone wrong, you need to kind of get back here. And I, I said, look, you know, have, have MasterCard called us and said they're switching us off? No. Okay, great. In which case, it, it's it's going to be okay, and we will we'll kind of find a way way through. So, um, but yeah, that that was kind of one of the the stories. I can tell more. Right? I don't know how much. Time oh no, there. that's great. That's a great <laughs> example of just how you know it, over a twenty four hour period you can go from just elation to misery, and that's just that is the life of a an entrepreneur, isn't it? It's not all unicorns. I think one of the most difficult parts of being a founder that we've heard is, besides starting the business in the first place, where there's, there's those sorts of challenges, is also knowing when it's the right time to step away and exit, you know, leave. And we, we see it a lot, you know, especially during the pandemic. This, is, this has sadly happened quite a bit. So how did you take that difficult decision? Let's, if we take Curve, for example, you're a co-founder, it's a very successful fintech, but how did you come to the decision to leave and join Monzo? Because that must have been a very big call for you. Yes. 
yeah, it was. Uh, it was definitely probably one of the hardest decisions that uh, I've ever had to make. I certainly, when starting out Curve, I had the intention to to see it right through to to exit, and it was a business that fascinated me. We, um, it was my co-founder actually who had the the idea, and he said, "Yeah, maybe we could store all your cards just all on one card." And I kind of loved it. And I actually yeah, I wanted to see if, if I could build it. I was going to be doing the infrastructure behind this to make it work. And I, I, I could figure out, I could see um, I could see it working, but lots and lots of challenges to, to overcome. So those first two years were very, very tricky. This is really, it was kind of, it's technically challenging and the proposition was very challenging. And we had a lot of stressful moments and we sometimes didn't do the best job of um, kind of managing our stakeholders and there were a lot of ways in which we had a test, I suppose, of kind of the different core values that we had. And, and, and what was abundantly clear was that the the working relationship with myself and my co-founder just wasn't as smooth as it should have been. In, in, and it, it just it caused us to go slower. And the team were aware of the tension and the friction. And there was just no way that that could carry on for good. And so that was that was really, really tough. My co-founder had an incredible vision and it was his idea and I, I knew he'd be able to take it amazing places. And so in my head, I, I committed to getting it to Series A. And so the company was in kind of the strongest position it could ever be. And then I, I let him know that um, I was going to go my own way and he'd take, take it forwards. And, you know, that was uh, that was challenging. But, you know, the business has gone from strength to strength. It's, uh, it's definitely been an amazing spot since then. Then the Monzo part of it, Tom Blomfield, uh, in the right at the start, I had been giving him little bits of advice uh, along the way. I need the prepaid market very well, which is the original infrastructure before Monzo became a bank. Uh, they used, so I gave them some instructions there and so on. And um, we kind of got to, to know each other. And when I was thinking about a world after Curve, uh, he said I should come and be CEO of, of Monzo. Now, I loved the brand. I thought they were executing very, very well. They were getting good press. There was lots of buzz. And growth was beginning to take off. And I thought, it's a rocket ship. You know, it's a rocket ship and, you know, you don't ask too many questions, I think, past that that point. And so there were a lot of conversations that happened after that, met all of the the, the founders and uh, management team. And we figured out there was a, a fit. Um, I thought culturally very, very interesting, very strong, doing some really interesting things. And uh, we managed to make it happen. So um, you know, after many long walks and so on, made the move and uh, definitely you know, probably one of the best things I've done for my career. Yeah. And I, I can't wait to dig into it. I just wanted to come back to something you said just a second ago. And I think just the, the honesty around that dynamic between CEO and CEO that we, we've talked about earlier, it's just so important. I think it says a lot that it's okay to start a business and you know have the the intention to go all the way but sometimes things change and it doesn't always work but actually knowing the right time and having the bravery to step aside for the betterment of yourself and the business is a big call and clearly the right one because you know you went on to monzo you know i know you grew it from a hundred thousand customers to four million as it went through this hyper growth journey you scaled your team from 30 to a thousand in two years i mean these are just incredible so it clearly was the right decision so well done for that tom and i i think i'd love to just hear your thoughts on what were the main takeaways from that because very few people get to go through that type of growth 
you know, especially as a COO driving the ship. So how was that experience for you? What were the main takeaways and how did that make you become a better leader in the process? So I, I, well, one clarification, I mean, I didn't grow Monzo. Leo. Monzo was just growing. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, sorry. <laughs> my, yeah. my, job, my job as COO was trying to keep ahead of that growth and it was pretty nuts. So we had a, a, a few elements there that were, were particularly complex. So we we were getting known for decent customer service, but actually internally it was it was it was on fire. Actually, it was an in, in, inferno. Everyone was working like crazy and wanted to quit uh, when I started. And I had oh, a team really? of thirty people, but they were I mean they were giving their all. But you know, so they were but, known for having an incredible customer service, weren't they? Yes, and um, you know, so day one, someone said, "Hey, just so you know, your your whole team's going to quit." So it was, uh, was, <laughs> um, it was about to the fire, but um, I ended up growing the team from 30 to 1,000 people, just keeping up with, with growth and, and actually then also trying to build out. We decided to build our own customer support software. And that was a good or bad idea uh, in hindsight, who knows. But we were doing that to then be able to automate more so that we could have a more efficient system and not have to scale uh, um, our kind of ops uh, team in proportion to uh, the customer base. So that was nuts in itself, just hiring at that level, uh, hiring a thousand people in, in two years. And you just kind of learned about what it means to hire in bulk versus individuals. You start to create, we had hiring days where we just kind of get um, a whole bunch of people through. Then you rely more on, because there's only so much you can do really in the hiring process and also taking interview process is a massively flawed process anyway you rely more on probations and performance management which means lots of saying goodbye to people as well don't work out and that's not a part of the job that uh, that i enjoy we learned about using remote to our advantage so we were very early on this this is kind of pre-pandemic stuff uh two-thirds of my team were fully remote and we made that work very very well and so it meant then we could hire from across the, the whole country um, and then set up support offices in, uh, in wales and uh, in the states but it meant that we, the kind of hiring piece, that, that was huge. And then that created this other problem, which is around people. So this becomes a game of actually managing through people. And it's a thousand people to this sort of almost an oil tanker very quickly, but you still need to be able to stay nimble. And so comms becomes critical and your ability to, to get the message out, we actually realized I had no way if I wanted to, to reach all a thousand people and know that they got the message. That's a big problem, you know, if you're, you're in charge of that. So we had to create systems uh, to be able to, to get around that. And the autonomy, absolutely critical. And so one of the things that Monzo did incredibly well and I've and kind of taken that forwards was uh, about cross-functional autonomous teams. And you can then move very, very fast if you give people real autonomy, like they can really go for it. So you just clarify what the goal is, whatever the constraints are, but then that's it. Uh, they can run. And you, you've then got a whole set of galloping horses and it, it's incredible. And you actually don't even know what's exactly happening on the front line. But um, as long as everybody's aligned, then you trust uh, your ability of your managers to kind of make it all, all happen. So just so many different kind of things <laughs> in, uh, in a short space of time, but uh, yeah, incredible journey. What an experience. And yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you, culture was something that Monza was always famous for. And you've had to you know, build such a large team and, and try and maintain that culture within it. It's, just, it's, it's, you know, it's impossible to keep the same culture of a, a team that's 100 to 1,000. But what were some of the things that you tried to do to 
instill a, a new type of culture and a positive one? And, and, and what, were, what were some of the learnings that any founder listening can take from that? Well, I, I can't take credit for this uh, at all, but the exercise that we needed to go through was, strangely enough, that we were very well known for our culture. And we all had a pretty good sense of what it was. It wasn't written down. And so actually, you know, we went over a thousand people, you know, company-wide, we had over a thousand people and we, we hadn't written this down. And so that became then quite a high priority. We developed five core values, core principles, which I want to call them. And one of them, for example, was um, hard on problems, not people. And so this was about you know, making sure that we we're very robust in kind of getting to the answer, but actually we're still respectful of our, of our colleagues. And it was a great one. You know, you could really call people out on it when you saw um, people breaching that. Or defaults transparency, probably like you know, one of the, the number one principles of uh, Monzo. I've never seen a company it's so transparent, including you know, from Tom himself, is just uh, jaw-droppingly transparent at times. It just, uh, just amazing. I, I've really tried to take that forward as well. And, um, so we kind of got those core principles in, in place, and that helped a lot. You know, we could use it then in, in hiring, in, in firing, and everything in between. And it meant that when I was starting out companies, and when I was thinking about Lollipop, I'd actually got clearer on the type of company I wanted to build before I really clarified the proposition. And so I began to take some of the best elements of the three startups I've been a part of and I've been lucky enough to kind of see you know, the CEOs in action on and put that together into what I thought would be a pretty un unstoppable combination. So I came up with this, like think, basically kind of pushing it bigger, frightening the ambitious ideas. This is from a Paul Graham article on this. So just about kind of pushing it to the, the level where the things sound a bit scary, um, almost impossible, but not quite. And then speed as a habit, absolutely um, great, just in terms of the single differentiator that you have versus other companies that are probably better resourced than you. And the third, leave things better than you found it. And that was really important to me because actually I thought it's not just enough to sort of sustain things, but actually how can you like do, do better? There are some companies that I really respected that sort of don't bother with that bit and it's a real shame and they don't think about the impacts they're having on the, the bigger picture. And so... Those parts I took forward and I was like, right, I want to build a company about this before I'm even really sure about what the company's going to do. Amazing. Love that. Love that. And we're going to talk about Lollipop very soon. And thanks so much for sharing. And I think there's, there's tons there that other founders and, 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 and leaders listening to this can, can take. I just wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to our sponsors for this series, Chipper Cash. The team have been on an incredible journey, having launched their borderless way to send money across Africa and beyond in eight countries so far, and are widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup. So go check them out at chippercash.com or tune in to our 40 Minute Mental episode with their co-founder and CEO, Ham Serenjoji. There would have been lots of sleepless nights as CEO of Monzo, I have no doubt. And the founder and CEO, Tom Blomfield, as, as you mentioned, is, is very transparent. He's also been very vocal about experiencing burnout and suffering from anxiety during his tenure. How did you handle the pressure of, of that situation uh, at Monzo? And, and how are you at protecting your own mental and physical health now? I know you're a parent, you're embarking on this journey all over again. Some would say kind of a suck of a punishment. I don't know, but, but, but how are you protecting yourself? And, uh, you know, because it's a, a theme that comes up a lot on this podcast and something that I think all founders uh, and people in tech need to talk more about. 
it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I'm so glad that it's now getting the attention that it, it deserved. And I believe that startups in particular are really a fundamentally bad for your, for your health if you're not careful. And people don't realize that until, until you're into it. And especially if you're in leadership positions, especially if you're a founder, you think about this all the time. So at Monzo, I don't feel like I did a, a brilliant job, to be honest, of, uh, of handling my, my mental health, but I, w- I was okay. It was still ultimately a, a job because I hadn't founded it. I was able to switch off at night at the very least. And so I slept okay. And, and Tom would talk to me about sleeping problems. And I was like, gosh, that sounds awful. Like, I don't know how you're, you're functioning. But I, I didn't have that. But the days themselves were unbelievably stressful. Uh, we all, the whole management team in, in particular, felt under enormous pressure. And when I left, I felt like I jumped out of a moving car. And it took about three months to to really to recover from that. Now I'm CEO and and founder. My sleep is terrible. <laughs> so, yeah. There's a least, theme there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The days aren't quite as stressful as that kind of breakneck growth that we were, were trying to keep hold of at Monzo. But um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sleeping well. I just said to my wife this morning, I need to get a, a book on this. So and I can't give any advice there, but I can give some advice on on kind of finding balance. And this was something that came through the curve journey where my first child was born the very same week we were launching to the public. Um, so it was, a, it was a bad week. And um, we had a, a crazy period. And actually, um, my wife suddenly suffered with some depression um, after the, the birth of our child. And I, we, we didn't realize. And I wasn't giving her enough support. I was really focused on, um, on the startup. And um, you know, we ended up, it, it really, things came to a, a head. Um, she said, you need to <laughs> kind of pull your socks up. And I'm, I'm so glad that she did. And we came up with this concept called the perfect week. And so what we did was we just drew out on a piece of paper the type of week that we'd like to have. And what I had been doing was I sorted all the work stuff first. And then I tried to fit in the family commitments around that afterwards, which was insane because the work stuff kind of never ends. And it, it will just fill up any capacity that there there is. So instead, we put in the important things family-wise, like making sure that I was you know, really helping the baby and so on, and um, actually a little bit of time for the relationship. And then if there was scope for, you know, then the work stuff, and then if there's scope for like going for a run or whatever, then, then even better. So we, we had the shape of a week that was good, and then I put it in the diary. And amazingly, I, I was expecting, you know, my, my work to really suffer. I was like, gosh, these things are blocked out. Um, this is just, there's no way that I'm going to be able to get everything done. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. And I've done that ever since. So, you know, now there is um, every night um, I put one of my children's beds. So we alternate um, and just do that every night. And it's even though it's startup life, like that is really, really important. And so I want to be making sure that basically in terms of the childcare, it's kind of 50-50 between us. And then we have to get clever and inventive on some of the other ways to, to kind of make that happen. We've got a, uh, we get a babysitter on Saturday mornings. So we both get a break. Nice. Oh, that's and then, great. Yeah, you know, it's, it's absolutely awesome. So, um, you know, that's those are types of things. It's a bit of a sacrifice, and then you know, I'll probably do a little bit of work on a Saturday morning as well. But I'm willing to do that so that then the shape of the week has the right shape and it's got some balance in it. So, yeah, massive proponent of uh, a perfect week. Love that. And I'm, it's something that I struggled with, and actually lockdown really helped in terms of just, re, just putting a few things in perspective about being deliberate around blocking time out for the most important stuff, which is, is family. 
Thank you, Tom. Well, it's time to talk about Lollipop. It's described by the press as the Monzo of supermarkets. Let's start off by um, telling our listeners, if you don't mind, what Lollipop does and why you decided to set it up. Yes, absolutely. So Lollipop is a new way to do the online grocery shop. Uh, we're particularly focused on, on families at the moment, and we want to make it faster, funner, if that's a, a word, and better. Um, better for you, um, better for the planet. And so our interest in this was actually based on, on me and my wife arguing over who was going to do the shop each week once we had kids. And this just becoming a, a real chore. And uh, we used to love going to the, the shops in person, but um, then online shopping um, yeah, sucks all the, the fun out of it. And I wondered if there were other people around the country who were feeling like this. And it turns out kind of every family I spoke to in particular, um, and actually lots of other people, um, just really didn't enjoy it. It's just a, a thing that had to be done. And having worked in Monzo and just seen this beautiful product, I began to picture what a product might look like that I would really enjoy using and that was much quicker. So nobody, so far as I could see it, had really nailed buying a lot of items fast, but not even Amazon. You know, and so like, how do you buy kind of 80 items really, really quickly? And it's the reason why when we surveyed people, uh, they were spending over an hour a week on meal planning and, and shopping. And I thought we can do this. We can solve this. So uh, we're very focused on speed. We bring in a lot of kind of fun elements to uh, to the process. And then, then the better bit is um, I just kind of believe that you should be able to achieve your goals, uh, both as an individual and um, kind of helping for the greater good. As part of doing your, your shop. Love it. That's so exciting. And I know like anyone, you know, that's listening to this will have had their unbelievable frustrations when it comes to weekly meal planning and that sort of stuff. I think with all disruptive new ideas and startups, they're skeptics. So how's it going to improve their lives? What are the other things you've, you know, you'd want them to hear about? I think that it's the better bit that's particularly exciting for, for me. So I'll, I'll double click on, on what I mean there. Actually, is double click a thing anymore? I don't even know if you do double click. I don't know. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> dive in deeper on that. I want to create something where you can say, I want to reduce saturated fats in, uh, in what I'm, I'm eating. I want to be able to gradually make it more healthy, the, the food that I'm kind of giving to, to my family. Reduce carbs, you know, set a, a weight goal, and even then, kind of thinking about the, the planet, how to kind of make things better in that respect, you should be able to say, I want to reduce plastic. I want to eat less meat, uh, reduce my carbon footprint. Like all of those elements, I want to bring that to the shop so that this isn't then just a, a thing that needs to get done and just filling your cupboards. Actually, there's a purpose. Yeah, there's some reason why you're doing it. And that, to me, is really exciting. So if we can give, uh, yeah, I think the data is there, you know, and, and I think if we can give people those insights and just uh, show them their progress towards their goals, and you're also getting the shop done and eating really delicious meals, like we're developing our own amazing uh, meals with the ex-head of food from HelloFresh, um, developing lovely stuff for us. I think that we can actually really do something here and just bring a bit of magic back to it. So we talk about in, internally, we say kind of making the, the mundane magical. And I, I really, I think that's what's needed. You know, no more humdrum. Love it. Oh, I'm really excited to see how it evolves. And I know you've already started to assemble a brilliant team and have got some awesome investors involved. And I think you've done that all under the backdrop of a global pandemic, which is no mean feat. What are some of the other 
challenges you faced in this first year with Lollipop? And then there are any particular lessons or mistakes that you've made, you know, this time around that you think other others listening might find useful and learn from? Yes. Actually, first thing that I'd recommend is uh, Tom Bonfield has done a blog post on fundraising and it's unbelievably good. But he's kind of brilliantly insightful and it's forward stuff that I was like, good grief, I made pretty much all of those mistakes and this was like my fourth startup. So the couple of things that uh, that I I certainly learned, if I I think about this, one, I lost time looking for a a big pre-seed and meanwhile sort of trying to really nail down the proposition and um, having answers to all the questions. And that was really silly. I, if I could go back, I would say, just take a little bit of money just enough so you can kind of get going and bring somebody else on really quickly. It just doesn't matter if you know somebody who's, who's aligned and excited about this sort of vague general direction. It doesn't matter if you don't really know what you're going to do because you'll just get there so much faster. But I put all the pressure on myself and really wanted to, to raise a million quid pre-seed and, you know, and I kind of got there, but it took uh, all, all year and had to, you know, and I lost time. That, that just wasn't efficient. And so um, that's, that's kind of a, a piece of advice, num- number one. I think piece of advice, number two, is just know actually what you need money for. And if you don't need it, maybe don't worry too much about the, the fundraising element. You might find you could do some stuff just for, for free, uh, especially if you're working with somebody who's already in a job and you could just get going with them side of desk and, and so on. Like, I think you can get a long way. Uh, without even taking any money, but still getting other people involved. So those are kind of the, the two pieces now looking back on it. Um, I, I wish that I'd, I'd done a bit differently. Yeah, that's that's super useful. And how have you found that switch from COO to CEO? You've obviously been around the startup scene for a while. You know the pressures involved. You've seen other people in the, I guess, in the CEO, CEO seats. You probably learned a lot. But how have you found that from a personal perspective, making that transition? And, and have there been any similarities or differences to what you expected or been surprised by? Yeah, so I was in the very lucky position to be CEO three times over and, and sort of in the passenger seat getting to to watch the, the driver in action. So you do find yourself thinking, oh, I wonder what it's like to uh, to actually drive this thing. I honestly thought CEOs don't do anything. You know, CEOs did all the hard work. Uh, so I, I've <laughs> been surprised um, by actually, it's, uh, it turns out it's really hard work. And I actually went through a period of coaching to make the transition. So I didn't take it lightly at all. I knew that it was a different skill set. I boiled it down to, and I didn't make this up, by the way, but um, you know, the CEO, I think, is three things. It, it's vision, it's money, it's talent. Um, non-talent, it's hiring and culture within that. And so those, those don't tend to be under the, the remit of a, a CEO. And I, I wanted to, to get that, that right and be kind of thinking in, in that way. Now, one of the fundamentals of this and actually having the time and the right mindset for getting the vision right is you have to let go of the how to make it happen bit that is the core component of being a good COO. So I was the best at, or sorry, you know, I got very, very good at being next to a CEO saying, it's there, you know, that's, that's the, the place we're heading to. And then I would just break that down into to steps. I just operationalized it. And that's what I, I love doing in it. You know, and I, I was honing that skill. And that is a bad skill to have as a CEO because it limits your thinking. It's really, really important. I think that CEOs can just say, I think that that's the answer. I think this is where it's all heading. 
and I don't actually know exactly how we get there, but I, I'm pretty sure that's the answer and we'll, we'll sort of figure it out along the way. And that was what I, I did my coaching on. It was really just unpicking that and just starting to just become kind of limitless saying, right, great, forget about exactly what's possible or how to get it done, but just it's there. You know, this is this is where we're heading. And I was looking at grocery, which was fast moving industry, um, changed very rapidly. And then a pandemic came along, which just totally turned it upside down. So it's been a very useful skill trying to figure out kind of, um, you know, when you skate to where the puck is going, like where the puck is going. How do you stop yourself as the business evolves and then you you, know, you hire, hire operational, you hire a COO eventually? How do you stop yourself kind of getting back into that mindset of being a COO and like give that person the time to kind of do their job? Because it's, you know, it's clearly something you are exceptional at. Do you think that is going to be a, a struggle for you? Or do you think actually you, you're kind of now just very comfortable not doing those bits? A uh, quick clarification. I don't think I was exceptional at a, a CEO, but I managed to kind of make it work. <laughs> so I think that in reality, if you're doing the CEO role correctly, then there's an obvious gap. And I, I'm beginning to feel it already. So I'm I'm kind of thinking, actually, I would, I would love a strong CEO uh, alongside me. And I can see exactly how they, they slot in. And there's, there's two types of, of COO. There is the operational leader, so very, very strong and actually just the kind of customer facing and back office operations. And then there's the, the kind of run the company COO. And I'm super excited about like when we reach that, that stage, having that type of a, a person with me who can really just take care of everything that's going on internally. And that means that then great CEOs, I think, are out there just selling you know, selling the dream and closing partnerships and raising money um, and getting great talent and so on. They can just focus just on, on everything out there. Whereas right now, obviously, that's on my shoulders. And um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it and think it's going to be the right thing to to kind of hand that over at the right time. Good stuff. Good stuff. Tom, we, we, we're nearly at the end, uh, but I just wanted to touch on one more really important topic, which is I think something that we're both really passionate about, which is social mobility and, and helping underrepresented founders. Um Ways have you been trying to to help tackle the DNI issue in tech? Because I know it's something that you're really, you know, vocal about, and something that that you are are really passionate about. I'd love to just hear a bit more about that. I am, and um, it was Black Lives Matter, to be honest, that really um, kind of opened my eyes to this stuff, and I was like, wow, this all of this needs to change. And I found it a little bit depressing raising money last year and trying to spot a, a black VC that's um, maybe kind of one across, I don't know, um, 50 people I must have met. And so that I really want to to push for change in the ecosystem I'm in, both the uh, startups and actually um, venture capital. So I gathered together a group of folks. We uh, This is COO Stories, um, so that network that I, I, I'm in. We were doing a, a survey where we could see gender pay gap in action and also this real kind of lack of uh, racial representation and leadership. And I thought, you know what, we can just sort of read this stuff and then feel sad about it. We can just go and do something about it. So we gathered a group of people together. We've met every week and um, we've been working on a couple of toolkits to to help companies to, to make a difference here. And then I've just joined up with another initiative, which is being run by Nikhil, founder of uh, Mixcloud, called All In. And so we're now going to all kind of run under this banner. We're going to try and get a thousand companies, a uh, thousand startups to sign up to make change, drive change on, on diversity. And that's super exciting. It's not just about 
the commitments that we, we've got there, but actually about the community that we'll build and the impacts that we can then have with those, uh, with those numbers. So we are, uh, you'll see more about that. I'm not even sure if I was meant to mention it, but there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, the more we talk about it, the better. That's, that's incredible. I'm, you'll uh, I'm you'll really... see more about it uh, next year. So really excited. Incredible. That's awesome. Oh, great. Great to hear this sort of thing happening. And, um, you know, you, you have my and Jacob's full support on that. Just finally on that, there's going to be, founders listening to this from underrepresented communities that have struggled to get traction when it comes to fundraising. We, we've all seen the horrendous stats when it comes to that. What advice would you have for them that are in a similar position to you perhaps, but maybe don't have your profile? What would you say to them to, to kind of advice to keep going and, and, and things that might help? This is a real problem. And the most disappointing thing is when you see on a, a VC's website, uh, warm intros, and you know what that means, that, you know, that means this, you're either in the network or you're, you're out of it. And so it's obviously a barrier based around privilege. And um, it's, uh, that's really, really tough. What I think is some of the good VCs I've, I've seen doing some, some interesting things. They've got angel outreach programs um, where they've given a, a bunch of, of normally diverse angels the ability to write checks and they feel like then they can kind of go and uh, go to places the VCs can't. That's, um, that's good. That's encouraging. I've seen some VCs who have good policies to kind of send us your pitch deck and we will look at it no matter what. That's good. I think that the easiest thing you can do is build a relationship with uh, entrepreneurs. I think that they are easier for you to find and like just get somebody to be looking over your pitch deck. And if they believe in you, hopefully then can make the, the intros as well. So I feel like that's a, a routine that just then makes it a bit more uh, attainable. But um, I, I want to see the VCs doing more on this as well. I want them to kind of look and say, how many deals have we done that came from our network versus uh, you know, the wider piece? Definitely. And um, Czech Warner from Aid Events has been on the podcast before, and I know she's really changing the game when it comes to, to this and, uh, and and being very vocal with and diverse TVC as well. So, um, yeah, it's great, great to be talking about it. And hopefully we won't be talking about it as much in the years ahead and we can make some real change in the VC space. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that. We're sadly at the end. We've got three wrap up questions. So I have to ask you, do you have a mentor? And if there was one person that you could have as a mentor, who would it be? <laughs> I actually have a team. So this is a um, piece of advice that I was given, which is get yourself a coaching team and they give me different things. So I've got a guy called Douglas Squirrel, who's uh, my tech mentor and just generally smart guy. Divinia Knowles, I reached out to her for, for things and in particular kind of um, that, that journey to the CEO uh, world and Stefan Toma, um, who's very good on the people side. He's next uh, Google uh, people leader. So I really recommend that just go and, uh, and pull together the different people that you need for, for different things. If I could be mentored by someone, gosh, my challenge at the moment is all my heroes are, are, are sort of becoming less heroic. So I used to love Jeff Bezos and then I kind of read the, the everything store and I was like, gosh, they do lots of really naughty things that I don't respect. And Elon Musk, I just thought was kind of incredible in terms of the level of ambition, but then he does very silly things on Twitter and, and so on. So I don't quite know, but um, and perhaps I, I actually, I think that the mentors I have are the, the ones that are my dream mentors. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. And um, when you are sitting back in your chair, looking back on your career in, in, in many years to come and all the success you've had, how would you like to be remembered? Ooh, 
this is going to sound weird, but I actually for the thing I do next after this. So what I said to myself was I want to build something from scratch as a CEO founder and ideally, hopefully have some success uh, with that. And then I want to use that success on the next one to do something that's pure, pure, like not money involved, just for good. And so, awesome. um, but unfortunately I need to sort of have the success yeah. to, to be able to do that. So, um, yeah, everything's riding on Lollipop at the moment. Okay. Got it. Brilliant. And finally, for any listeners that are thinking about a big career move, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Ooh, I would say there's an expression I heard, which was, what would you do if you weren't afraid and do that? That is a great, great answer. You can ask yourself that every day. Just do that. And maybe that is a challenge to us all to ask that question. Tom, what, what a fantastic place to end this. Thank you so much for sharing your story and mentorship. I'm sure I speak for all our listeners when we say we're rooting for you with Lollipop and excited to see where that goes. So thank you for, for being such a great 40-minute mentor. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.